This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll be talking with Professor Mo Asani, PhD, PE, structural engineer, president and CEO at Quake Wrap Incorporated, about how the field of structural engineering has evolved with the introduction of composite materials like FRP or fiber reinforced polymer, the advantages that FRP technology has over traditional concrete and steel repair solutions, and the differences between infrastructure repair projects in the water and on land. Professor Asani will also share some examples of successful infrastructure repair projects that have utilized FRP technology and will provide insights into how this technology can benefit structural engineers. Before we go on here, a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Simpson Strong Tie. Simpson Strong Tie is a building industry pioneer dedicated to helping people design and build safer, stronger homes, structures, and communities. Simpson Strong Tie is making a positive difference for their customers through expert engineering, world-class test laboratories, and unrivaled technical support. We invite you to consider working alongside the many talented, passionate, and humble people who are all contributing to our shared mission in an environment that supports a healthy work-life balance. It's a place where you can connect, create, and build a career. Visit strongtie.com forward slash careers to learn about our culture and why Simpson Strongtie employees are our most loyal customers. I'm your co-host, Matthew Picardle. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Mo. Mo, welcome to the show. Can you tell us about your background and what you do on a daily basis at QuakeRap? Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Basically, my background, I went to, uh, I'm originally from Iran. I came to U.S. after high school back in 1972 and went to University of Michigan, where I received my bachelor's, master's, PhD, all at Michigan. I always said the other schools were wise enough not to admit me, so Michigan got stuck with me. And then I came to Tucson in 1982 to start as a professor of structural engineering at the University of Arizona. Earlier, kind of in my career, as you know, a lot of professors were supposed to have a funded research program. So I was looking at new areas to you know, get into research funding and um, came across this use of carbon composite materials, for uh, which at the time they were being primarily used in the defense industry. The cost was really high, but luckily about the same time as we were getting towards the end of the decades of the 80s, there was a collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. So the military's interest in these materials dropped and their cost went down quite a bit. So they became feasible for construction. 
then really the rest of the my career, the the last uh, 35 years, it's been working and uh, you know developing new products. You know, I have about 20 patents now on these things, and finally about 12 years ago in 2010. I beat the bullet and uh, left the academic life and that 10-year full professor, 10-year lifetime guarantee of a paycheck. And I said, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur and give it a try. (laughs) For the field of structural engineering, with the introduction of composite materials like FRP, how has that affected the way we approach infrastructure uh, repair projects? Let me actually tell you that when we started looking at these, our initial interest was for repairing, you know, some of your audience may remember that, you know, in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake where, you know, some of the bridges in San Francisco and Oakland, in Oakland, they collapsed. And the major problem with these bridges was that they had enough reinforcing steel in the longitudinal direction in the columns, but not enough ties or hoops around them. So we came with this idea that you could actually take a carbon fabric, which is very strong in tension, and if you wrapped it around the column of a bridge, you could make it earthquake proof. Thus, the name quake wrap was really for just that one application of wrapping these fabrics around the columns of bridges. But then over the years, we have realized that these materials really open up a lot of doors for all kinds of structural engineering applications. And in fact, you know, today, if we look at the business that we do in, in QuakeRap, probably less than 5 to 10% may be seismic upgrade activities, but the rest of it is all about corrosion repair, strengthening. And, you know, these materials, I think some of their main key advantages is that they're very lightweight. They can be applied quite easily and quickly and uh, have an excellent you know, tensile strength and they're durable. So they, unlike steel that corrodes, these materials, they last virtually forever. So it's really a unique type of product to be used in a lot of these engineering applications. You kind of get rid of some of the, the cons of steel tensile reinforcing with the corrosion. Could you explain some of the advantages of the FRP technology over the traditional concrete and steel repair solutions? First of all, you know, anytime that you want to retrofit a building, in fact, you know, this would be interesting. The way we started, you know, our first job with this company was a job that we did in Southern California in Glendale. And in fact, that really kind of goes back to tell you that why the traditional method wouldn't work. This was a masonry wall. This was now a few years later. It was damage in the Northridge earthquake. So this was about 1994. The wall was damaged and traditional repair would have been to dowel some rebar into this wall and put a new mesh of reinforcing steel and then gunite on it, you know, which is conventional repair even today we use on a lot of projects. Well, these, they add about six to eight inches of thickness to the wall. And that building happened to be sitting right on the property line. So they didn't have six or eight inch of space to thicken the wall. And that's how we got our very first job and the beginning of the company was with that job. Uh, you know, in fact, if any of your listeners are in uh, Southern California, the, I never forget the address. It is 222 North Verdugo in Glendale. And every time I go to Southern California, if I drive by that, it's a dry cleaning store and you can drive right next to the wall because it's in the parking lot. So it's open to the public. So that's really one of the advantages is that if you use traditional reinforcement, like using steel rebar, 
you know, then you have to chip away the concrete and put, once you put the rebar, you have to protect it with an, an additional layer of concrete. It adds a lot of weight to the building. Also, imagine if you have to do these, like, you know, on upper floors of a building, let's say you want to strengthen a beam on the fifth floor of a building. Well, you know, if you have to take a steel beam to take under there to support it, for example, or take a lot of concrete, that just, you know, adds so much time and cost to the construction. With these materials, virtually like a roll of carbon fabric and a couple of buckets of epoxy, you could put those under your arm and go up the passenger elevator to that floor and strengthen these. And usually when you apply these, uh, the materials cure in a day or so. And the next day you have a material that is two to three times uh, stronger than steel. If you look at it from uh, an engineering point of view, for example, when we are retrofitting or strengthening a slab or beam, we put these materials directly on the tension face of the element. So you have the maximum depth for your moment arm. It gives you a pretty good uh, moment capacity because of the having the, that high moment arm also. Yeah, like you were saying, in terms of the ease and constructability of it, you just need a bucket of epoxy and pretty much a full of carbon fiber wrap, and you're pretty much gluing on tension or tension seal or a tension element, and that's all the repair is. It's and you get the tension using the properties of concrete. So it's you got it right, but also think about it that because these are kind of made. You know, I always simplify this to say it's it's almost like putting a wallpaper on your structure. But you take, you know, a roll of this fabric with you. So so even if you have a 30-foot-long span that you're trying to repair, you don't need to take a 30-foot-long element with you, which would be really challenging in an occupied building. Here, it's a roll of fabric, and you just open the roll, and you cut the length that you need, 30, 40, 50 feet, whatever, apply it. And, and that's really just like... These kind of things, they add so much uh, to it because we have, you know, I also own a construction company and we install all of these. And so I really appreciate the fact that how the ease of construction is something that, you know, for some of us structural engineers, maybe we don't worry about that too much, but I have to deal with that aspect of the job too. And the fact that these can go on easily, it really matters a lot. Are there any limitations to FRP technology? And if so, how do you overcome them? One of the main differences between FRP and a lot of other engineering products is that composite materials, because remember, they're made out of very individual fibers that are made into a bundle of fibers that they call a toe. And then those toes are taken to make weave a fabric out of it. So the strength of these materials comes from the orientation of the fiber. So you could, for example, have what we call a unidirectional fabric where all of the fibers are aligned in one direction. And if you're strengthening a beam, for example, you would put those fabric, you would run it along the length of the span on, let's say, on the bottom of your beam. So it's really effective this way. But if this fabric is unidirectional, then realize that it doesn't have any strength in the transverse or 90 degree direction. So this could be really a, both a blessing and a curse. You know, in one sense, you're not wasting your material where you don't need it. So typically, for example, when we are strengthening a beam, we would put a unidirectional fabric on the bottom of the beam, let's say, you know, pretty much the whole span to strengthen it for flexure. But then 
when we want to strengthen the same beam for shear reinforcement, we would take that unidirectional fabric and wrap it near the ends of the beam in the hoop direction, similar to how you would install a stirrup. In the ends, the fibers need to remain vertically. And this, this is one of the things that other materials, engineering materials, like let's say steel, has the same strength in X and Y direction when if you take a plate of steel. With composite materials, that's not the case. And depending on what amount of fibers you have in each direction, you as the engineer get to control the design, the strength of that, which is really a unique but great opportunity to use the materials very efficiently. So for the typical structural engineers that are doing the retrofit, how does that work? Let's say for Quake Wrap, would uh, the engineer of, of record design it or would you be some type of consultant or... Yeah, I guess that's something that we don't usually learn in school in terms of the typical engineer. You're right. Unfortunately, these FRP products are not covered in a lot of, you know, in hardly any university curriculum. But there are, you know, just so that your audience knows, there are ACI has a document, you know, the ACI Committee 440. They have a design guideline for design of externally bonded FRP products. And it's very prescriptive. You can actually like go through, in fact, at the end of that document, they provide a few worked out examples. So it's really easy that you can follow and do. So oftentimes we would like to really not become a competitor to the engineers on their projects. We want to be you know, collaborating with them and become a part of their team if they need it. We have done different ways. There are some times we see construction drawings where the consultant has prepared the drawings and then on the drawings they mark on every element let's say on every beam that requires strengthening they write a note that this beam the strength of this beam in flexure has to be enhanced by so much and in shear enhanced by so much and then they require the material suppliers to provide the design subject to approval by the engineer of record so that's a very common way that we would do it. But we also, because we have our own construction company, we do the bulk of the work that we do is design build where the clients may find us and come to us. We provide the design as well as the construction and just take it from A to Z. And we find that approach also to be nice and much easier for the owners too. And this way we stand 100% behind the work. Uh, you know, if anything goes wrong, you know, we are the only company that is responsible for it. You were originally using it for seismic retrofit, but then it seems like a big part of it now is uh, doing infrastructure repairs in water and on land too. Could you talk about more about those? Um, it seems like there's a lot of corrosion projects and I know corrosion is a huge deal for concrete. So can you talk about a little bit more about that? Because as I said, you know, although our original strength was for seismic application, then over the years we have kind of found a lot of additional, you know, useful applications of these materials. So one of them is in the area of repairing structures underwater, and that relates to some of the products that I have developed. So these we can, for example, the fabric, you have to bond it directly to a surface and that surface needs to be therefore needs to be smooth and if it is damaged or rough you have to first trowel it with some patching material get it smooth and then wrap the fabric well one of the products we have developed is a very thin laminate 
that the laminate doesn't need to be, in fact, we do not bond it to the surface of the structure, but let's say if you have a column that you want to repair, you can take this laminate and cut a length of it. So say you cut a length four feet wide, it comes in four feet wide roll. So let's say you take a 10, 15 foot long piece of this and you wrap it around itself around the column and you glue it to itself to create a shell or a tube around the column at a distance, a couple of inches away from that column. So that then you can fill that annular space with rebar or concrete or what have you to strengthen the column. And the same thing we can do that when repairing underwater. So we usually take like these four foot laminates and we can assemble them at water level, you know, the first four foot around the pile, and then we lower it a little bit, put another four foot on the tail of it with like a four inch overlap. We lower the eight foot, then another four foot, you know, the 12, 16 and so on. So we can create a shell around the pile that can be sliding up and down until it goes down to the elevation that we want. And at that time, then we fill it with concrete or rebar or grout or whatever is needed. We can also place reinforcing bars along the side of the column. This is really one of the things that we do in water, and uh, it's been tested by the Army Corps of Engineers, Caltrans, Texas DOT for repair of you know steel age piles. Even this is one of our biggest uh, selling products called Pile Medic. And in fact, because you know with the name Quake Wrap, it was kind of in some of the products that we had, they didn't Quake Wrap was a little bit confusing for people to see what we do when we went to some of these shows. So we have a division called Pile Medic that has all of our marine repair solutions. And this pile, you know, these laminates are one of them. We have another system. We make these panels that are very rigid, but made with FRP. And say, if you picture like a panel that is four foot wide by say 20 foot tall, and in the field, we assemble these panels in front of a deteriorated seawall that is corroded, you know, like bulkhead or seawall or sheet pile. We put it in front of it, you know, connect these panels at a distance again from the wall. And that serves as an impervious stay in place form, if you will. And then we can fill the space behind it with concrete or grout. So the whole thing really on all of these corrosion solutions that we have provided, keep in mind, the main purpose is to keep oxygen away from the host structure because that's really the main source of corrosion. And, you know, in a simplified way, if you look at why do we buy a steel column and brand new start painting it, because that paint is going to keep the oxygen away from it and, you know, prevent the column from oxidizing and corroding. Well, we think of it like, you know, these FRPs that we put are not only they provide some strength, but they are also like a very thick layer of paint, if you will. You know, it's just going to be there forever and protect that host structure from corroding. So that's really one of the things we do for the marine applications. And then we have a whole different division of the company that has all kinds of pipeline repair solutions and that we call pipe medic.com similar name but it's called pipe medic and in that we have right now for example and it's funny because i kind of got into this thing you know as when i was a student in school or when I, even when i was teaching as a professor in structural engineering we don't focus a lot on like pipeline design or how but who's gonna do somebody has to do that for that problem when you get out you know ultimately in fact, we have a grant right now from U.S. Department of Transportation over a million dollars that we're developing a system 
for repair of oil and gas transmission lines. We don't think about the buried infrastructure so much because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But there are 319,000 miles of oil and gas transmission lines in U.S. alone. 319,000 miles. So you look at really like the opportunity for coming up with a repair system. And the one that we are developing is very much, I call it, is like an industrial stent. So we are making a robot with a balloon that around the balloon, we would wrap these layers of carbon and material. And then the robot would get go into the pipeline and find go to that point that the repair is needed. Then we inflate the balloon and the material sticks to the surface of the pipe, then we deflate the balloon and pull it out. And all of this can be done without uh, digging a trench. So it's called a trenchless technology. But this is kind of a whole new world that I was introduced to in the last 15 years or so. And I know some of your uh, audience members, you know, they should look up you know, like the terms trenchless, for example, and see there's a whole world of conferences and all kinds of meetings and innovation in that whole world about repair of pipelines and <laughs> there are a lot of other things to do above and beyond beam and column design <laughs> with structural engineering. With the marine projects at least it seems like it was I guess if you're an engineer and you have a concrete pile in water and you want to repair it that's not a straightforward solution off the bat. It's like it's existing you got water around it so it looks like what you do is you kind of get a FRP shell, you put it around it, and this is all without dewatering or anything. You just put it around the pile, and then you put in whatever reinforcing you get, either it's grout or steel reinforcing. And not only that... Or FRP reinforcement. <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> it's like waterproofing, and it's like structural waterproofing. And the same thing with the, I think you were mentioning the dams or the seawalls. We don't want water getting into this the existing seal reinforcing. So not only do you reinforce it with FRP, but it's also waterproofing. It's a pretty cool solution. You're absolutely right. It's really and one of the things, you know, like the challenges for construction underwater is, you know, if you have to build a coffer dam, for example, that could add a lot of cost, you know, to build the coffer dam, dewater it, and then do the report. So these solutions that we have developed, they can be done, like we have epoxies that cure in water. So you don't need to worry about dewatering around the pipe. And those are really some of the features of a solution that could make or break the product. Because if you can avoid the coffee, just all of a sudden you have saved the owner a lot of money on project. The other feature of like this pile medic laminate, so I should mention to your audience that why, so prior to me developing this pilemedic product, what the industry was using, and even today there are some people are using, you would actually have to order like two half shells to which more or less would be the size and the shape of the pile that you're trying to repair. These half shells would be built, you know, in some place shipped to you, and then you put them together and you bolt the seams or glue the seams together. But when you do it this way, you ultimately are going to have some moisture getting through that joint. So you cannot really, you're not protecting the column totally from the environment and corrosion. And from a structural point of view, if you look at, as a professor, I can never get away without lecturing. So (laughs) my apologies, but I feel like I have to educate your audience. So when you apply an axial load to a column, 
that causes, you know, that at the, near the failure point of this column under an axial load, you know, the materials dilate and they want to push outward. So if you wrap the column or confine it, it can take a lot more load vertically, even though you're wrapping it in the hoop or horizontal direction. So we use the same concept. And if you look at like some of these other products that they were being used before, if you put two half shells together and bolt the seams along the height of the column, well, when you load the column axially and this jacket wants to move laterally outward, those bolted connections are the weak point and they're going to break. But in our system, as you know, when you go like two wraps around the column and you know the wrap the laminate to itself, now you create a product that is 360 degrees the same strength. And you know, you don't have a weak point. And then you can actually, as a structural engineer, you can calculate the effect of that confinement. So in some of the jobs that we do, you, you know, you may use a 4,000 PSI concrete in your grout or in your column, original column, but by virtue of using a confining shell around it, you can make that 4,000 PSI concrete to work like 5,000 PSI. So you get a lot more strength out of your column. That's another benefit of this system. I know something that was drilled into us during grad school was, uh, for columns at least, was the confinement. The hoops were so important. That's why whenever we retrofit stuff in earthquake country, it's those hoops. Like those not only keep it ductile, but like you were saying, you can put more axial force based on testing. I think the PM diagrams don't take into account the hoops by testing it. That thing confines the core. So it's, I don't think it's in the code yet, but for for us, structural engineers in California, the hoops, yeah, they're great. You know, it's funny because we work a lot, you know, all over the country and in fact, you know, globally. And it's amazing that I see the practice of structural engineering, how different it is on the East Coast from the West Coast. In Florida, even in brand new buildings, you would be hard pressed to find anybody that uses a tie more closely spaced than like, you know, 10, 12 inches. And I always argue with these engineers that, look, this is not that much money. Put a few more ties in there. You know, this is... You buy yourself a good, you know, insurance policy at least, you know. What I think happens is that, you know, if you don't put enough ties in the construction to begin with, and then you have a little bit of it because of corrosion, some of these ties break. You're in a dire situation because you have these columns with virtually very little lateral support, you know, tie. Yeah. And if uh, corrosion gets into the core there and you don't have hoops, that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Do you have any more uh, examples of infrastructure repair that you wanted to go over? Because it seems like there's a lot of cool projects that you could do. It's funny because in our office every day, you know, we get calls. Of, uh, you know, we don't usually get a lot of like, you know, unlike most consulting firms that maybe you get a big multi-million dollar project and you spend two, three years designing it. We are not like that. We, every day, you know, the phone rings or somebody emails with a, something that went wrong. It could be something that was really urgent and happened, like contractor calling us that, oh, we were drilling, you know, for this shaft of a bridge and we hit this sewer, you know, 48 inch diameter sewer trunk. And now we've got a hole in the sewer from the top and we need to fix this thing you know, quickly. Or sometimes, you know, like something recently that we just did. And it's kind of really a sad, you know, for our profession, but there's a very nice, you know, like mansion type building getting built in the Bahamas. 
And uh, during the construction, you know, they still haven't put all of the finishing touches on the building, but they did some core testing and they realized that a lot of the cast in place concrete in this building, instead of being 4,000 PSI, it's testing at like 1,500, 1,600 PSI. And it's just a shame, you know, like they have spent all this money on this building. Luckily, at least they've noticed that before it was too late. So we've flown our employees out there to fix it and, you know, put some strengthening some of those elements. But we see, you know, that kind of lack of attention, you know, and improper maybe supervision, people trying to really cut corners from putting an extra sack of cement in the concrete, you know, and and then just like the cost of fixing it, it could be so much, so much more. We also see a fair amount of other type of construction errors or omissions, like there was a bridge we were looked, uh, fixed, you know, some several years ago, 15 years ago on Interstate 10, this portion of the bridge that goes through New Mexico. And so the contract, they were building two identical bridges. These were like nine span, each of the bridges, like a slab bridge and relatively short spans, about 25, 27 foot long spans, nine of them on each of the bridges. So they finished one bridge, put all of the traffic on that one, this is the westbound was finished first, the one that comes towards California. And then, so all of the traffic both ways was going on that one. Then they were building the eastbound. And during the inspection, one day the co- inspector tells the contractor that it doesn't look like you're putting enough steel in the deck of this bridge. He says, no, this is exactly how I finished the westbound. So they take a look at They see that he had left out half of the steel from the deck of that westbound bridge. Instead of putting number nine rebars at six inches, he had provided number nines at 12 on that finished bridge. So when we looked at, of course, you know, the eastbound bridge, they caught him you know, early enough and they, they put the right amount of steel in it. But when you looked at the westbound, you could see it. You know, I remember being next to it as these trucks going over it. It was just like fluttering and vibrate so much. But that was like one of the nice applications of these FRP products, instead of tearing down this brand new bridge, we went from the underside of the slabs and put fabrics, you know, directly bonded to the attention face of the slab. And, you know, that bridge has been in service now for 15 plus years, and you can never tell the difference when you drive over it. It's just, you know, doing really well. So, Dad, do they just paint over it just so to make it look like nothing's ever happened? You could stucco over it, paint over it. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought this up because sometimes on these bridges, especially, it could be because some homeless people make it a home. So having a little bit of that carbon fabric, you know, with the texture and color of it exposed, it rises the curiosity in some of these folks and they may want to <laughs> poke at it, which is not the strongest suit for FRP products. So it's better to hide them from view and putting like a, a stucco over it is not a bad thing, especially when people are living very close to it and looking at it every day. I wanted to jump into your career path because it's not the conventional, I would say, for a, a structural engineering student. Could you take us through that? What what challenges that you go through and how you made your career path decisions? I thought when I started my career as a professor, I thought this is going to be, you know, I'll retire as a professor. That was my vision at the time. Life had different plans for me, I guess. So, so we started, you know, in this field of FRP, as I mentioned to you back like, like some 35 years ago. And I think this is interesting for your audience to realize that 
anytime you introduce a new technology, it is such an uphill battle to get the society and profession to accept and uh, you know ultimately embrace you know these new uh, innovations that you put forward. So you know some of your audience have already like they've heard of FRP, but I'm talking about 1988, 1989. Many of you maybe haven't been born then going and talking to like potential clients that we want to use this new product that we are testing and it's going to do this and that and it's going to be longer lasting. There are a lot of naysayers out there and, you know, maybe rightly so for engineering and civil engineering, especially with we are conservative in nature. But the point is that if you are passionate about what you do and believe in, you know, in what you're trying to achieve, then you should stick with it. And be ready to have a lot of failures because this is a lot of disappointments by people rejecting you, rejecting your idea, your proposals. But if you deep in your heart believe in this thing, you know, you should stick with it. And ultimately, you know, hopefully you'll see that these people will come around. But, uh, you know, it is true that not something really for everyone, because I can see that a lot of people would sometimes I look at it and say, oh, my God, you know, how many times? I was so close to giving up and I just like said, no, 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 let's just go dust yourself off and get up and keep walking and see what comes. But uh, if you do that, then ultimately, hopefully you'll get to see the fruit of your hard work and, and you know, the decades that you spend on doing something you believe in. But we've been, you know, I've been really lucky in my career. So I had formed the company in, as I said, in 1994. And at the time I was still a professor and I stayed there another 15, 16 years after that. But being both a professor, having this business and having being a professor, it just wasn't really such a an ideal situation. So I finally decided that uh, it, it's better to, if I had to quit one, <laughs> I wanted to stick with this thing, which was my baby and passion. And I would just you know, say, Let, let's give this a try. And, you know, so I left the academic community, but this has been, you know, even, you know, at Quakerap, I think, you know, just again, so for some of your audience benefit, I did not end my uh, interest in research and development when I came, you know, in Quakerap, we have our own R&D lab in the company. The good thing is that, you know, if we want to do something, we have our lab technicians do it quickly. We don't have to wait for government grants or funding cycles and seeing whether somebody gives you the money to do it or not. So, so in some ways, you know, this is really more interesting that you can if you have an idea and having access to your own facility and lab, you can just you know test it. And we team up with some other universities for some larger projects that we do for R and D. But quite a bit of it we get to do in house as well. You know, so it's a combination of all of those. And uh, as far as really what I do, you were asking, you know, on a daily basis, it's a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I love to do some quick design calculations and I'm teased by my engineers and how I do it literally at the back of an envelope and quickly give them <laughs> an answer. We do that, you know, of course, owning a business, you have to, I also enjoy interacting with our clients. So I go to a lot of trade shows. We have exhibits, you know, to meet clients and then follow up with them. Sometimes, you know, if it's a larger project, we may have to, you know, go to the job site or meet the client, fly wherever they are, you know, on the, on the job site. Some of it, administrative work, of course, you know, in the office, you have to uh, run, make sure that there's money for everybody's paycheck by the end of the week. So <laughs> don't be afraid of not doing these things because you think that, oh, I didn't go to business school or I didn't. No, that's not it. 
if you are passionate about something, get into it. There's always, you know, help that you can get. Like if you need help with accounting, you can, you know, you can hire someone to do your accounting for you or outsource it and pursue your passion. That's really, life is too short not to enjoy what you really love to do. And, you know, why I consider myself really blessed is that even at this point in my life, I am so excited every morning to get out of bed and come to work. I don't consider this really work. And I think if you love what you do, then this is why you know you don't mind putting the long hours that it takes for you to be successful. And you should always you know look for something that you like to do, passionate about, and stick to it. Finding what you're really passionate about and finding your purpose too, I think you had a good purpose to drive you to do these things. And then your career path kind of leads you to where you need to go. It doesn't need to be the typical academia or structural engineering career, design projects, pursuing something that you're really passionate about. And I think your entrepreneurial mindset of, okay, I don't know how to do that, but we'll figure it out. Absolutely. I agree with you. And you know, to further your point is that once you get into the business world, you really don't know what other opportunities come your way. You can never predict it. So, for example, if somebody had told me 20 years ago that you are going to be the only company that receives this grant from U.S. Department of Transportation to develop a system to repair 319,000 miles of oil and gas pipe, I would say, what are you smoking? <laughs> you know, but you get into the business you know, we gradually kind of some jobs came that the pipes required to be strengthened. So we started using the same system that we had to repair these pipes. And then another opportunity comes. So then I came up with this idea of building it with a machine that we have developed. It's called Infinite Pipe, where we build a pipe continuously on site. This is really just like totally a new concept compared to like what how traditionally you make pipes in a factory, you ship them on a trucks and then you connect them together in the field and oftentimes then worry about why the joints leak. Well, with this infinite pipe, we send the machine that makes the pipe and maybe another container of raw material, they could be shipped to a job site anywhere in the world. And then the machine would make you the pipe on the spot. And then, you know, we can take the machine back and refurbish it and send it to another job. So it just becomes like, so much less in transportation cost of because we sell rolls of fabric and uh, drums of resin instead of hollow pipes that you have to ship. So it becomes very comp nice and compact to ship. But you know, like all of you know these things, I would have never expected it. And I always I, I tell people that I'm very grateful for our clients to come to us with their questions and problems that we don't have a solution to, but it makes us say, hey. How can we solve this problem? And then that always opens more new doors for you. Yeah. Who knew about pipelines and the whole world about that? It's they got, yeah, like you were saying, there's problems. And as engineers, we can use our problem solving abilities to help them out. Yeah, exactly. There's opportunities everywhere. Mo, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this. That was really interesting about hearing about FRP and your career path as well. And how can our listeners uh, connect with you? The best way really is uh, visit our website, quakerap.com. If you want my email, I can also tell you it's very easy. It's my first name, Mo, M-O, at quakerap.com. So shoot me an email. 
I love to hear, I enjoy talking, especially to the younger engineers in the beginning of their career. You know, if I can provide you any guidance or advice, I'd love to do that. Or if you just want to chat, you know, I'm always open to that. So I, I appreciate the time and opportunity to talk to you and your audience today and enjoyed our uh, discussions today. Yeah, thanks so much again, Mel. Have a great day. hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 101, as well as links to any of the resources or websites mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.